We're in the book of John this morning, and you can turn with me to John chapter 7. This morning's message I've entitled, Leaving Them Speechless. Last week, if you recall, Jesus took a position at a pillar in the Jewish temple. And this was typical of rabbis of their day when they taught. He came into the temple about mid, mid-week during the Feast of Tabernacles, which was a seven-day feast. And, and as we've described a couple of times, the Feast of Tabernacles was the most popular feast in all of Judaism because it had not only religious elements, with all, which all the feasts had, but it had, it had nationalistic elements. Because one day they believed God would reign and they would experience complete peace in the nation of Israel. Doesn't, don't the nation of Israel need that today? They're still longing for Emmanuel to come and live among them. And this feast represented that. And so they would build these temporary huts and, signif- and live in them during the week, basically a large camp out for the nation. And it signified their, their wilderness wanderings and how God provided for them in the wilderness when they didn't have permanent structures. So they would build these huts. That's why this feast has also been called the Feast of Booze. And it was also a time to celebrate the harvest that had just come in. So it was a fall feast. So they're celebrating all these things, and thus it was a very popular feast. As Jesus stands at the pillar, he's appearing midway through the feast. And as we said last week, his teaching is just off the charts brilliant. Just impressive to friend and foe alike. Even the people that were against him were like, how, how is this guy this good? <laughs> you know, kind of deal. How does he know what, what he knows? And so they're going against him. And during the, the dialogue, because they begin to say, where did you get this teaching? He describes the origin as being heaven. His origin is being divine. This is where he's getting his teaching from. Jesus kind of calls him out. You know, he, he calls him out in verse 19, kind of, what's the saying? He threw some shade, right? He's, he's calling them out here because in verse 19, he says, does not Moses give you the law and yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Jesus knew their motivation even before he came to the feast was that this religious elite wanted to kill him already. We're going to learn a little bit more about why that was the case this morning. But he basically says, you've got the law. You say that you keep the law, but then you are going out of your way to break the law in pursuing murder of me. And so he kind of calls them out and this kind of sets up uh, the dialogue. In fact, you, you see in verse 20, the people who were listening, they thought Jesus was crazy. They're like, there's no way religious people are capable of evil. Ha, ha, ha. It's like tongue in cheek, right? The most dangerous person on earth is the, the one that's got a, a, a holy book in one hand and a knife in the other. Religious people often can be the most dangerous people on earth. They can't believe that these guys are even capable of it. That's their response in verse 20. And now Jesus is going to leave them speechless. He is going to provide an argument that they can't combat. And it's the old proverbial, he is going to paint them into a corner. Ever done that, by the way? Ever? Well, don't admit it. But I mean, you ever, you ever done something like this where you've just kind of painted yourself into a corner? You've really got no response and it's just like, okay, I messed up. I'm done. My bad kind of deal. That's where he's going to get these religious leaders this morning. He, he's painting them in a corner that they cannot get out of. Let's just jump right into verse 21. Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work and you all marvel. Now, the question is, Jesus has done many works at this point in his ministry, right? He's, he's only about six months away. He's, he's been in ministry for two and a half years when we're in John 7. So he's only about six months away from his crucifixion. 
He's done a ton of works. The question is, what work is he referring to? Well, if we kind of just look at the context where we're going to go, I'm just going to kind of give you a heads up version of this, verses 22 and 23. He's talking about his healing of the infirm man back at the pool of Siloam, back in John chapter 5. This is a very significant healing. It happened about uh, a year and a half before this, it happened in Jerusalem. So basically, this, this was his coming out party, if you will, for the Jewish religious leaders. This is when they realized that he was doing things that were contrary to their, their preciously held traditions. And what had he done? He had healed a man on the Sabbath. And that was a big no-no. And they remembered it because even a year and a half ago, they were super upset about it. And in fact, this is the first place that they said, we want to kill Jesus. John 5, 18 says, therefore the Jews, again, remember in the book of John, when it says the Jews, it's talking about the Jewish religious leaders. This is how John uses this term. It says the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. And if you recall, after this verse, Jesus then continued to double down on who he was, his identity, where he was from. He wasn't backing off, even though that this, he, he knew that this healing on the Sabbath had upset them. He doubled down on his oneness with God the Father. Remember, he said, I don't do anything that I don't see the Father do. I don't say anything that I don't see the Father say. And so he doubles down there. So this has been going on. This murderous hatred has been growing and developing for a year and a half. But remember, about the time that he heals the man in Siloam, Jesus goes into Galilee, which is, you know, three days hike away. And he spends the next year and a half there doing ministry in and around Galilee. And so this tension has been building in Jerusalem. Jesus now comes back down. He knows they want to kill him. But this has been festering for a year and a half. This is how angry these religious leaders are. And so he says, you all marvel. It's interesting because the word itself means to marvel or to, to wonder, to be struck with admiration or astonishment. Context will tell you if it's a good astonishment or a bad astonishment. I would argue that this is a bad astonishment here. Like they're disgusted with Jesus. They're, they're so frustrated with him because he did something miraculous on a day when they said he shouldn't be doing that. And so what you're going to see is this, this, they're bumping up against their own interpretation of how things should be. And they don't like the fact that Jesus isn't fitting into their box. Jesus is going to put the religious leaders, as we say, in a pickle, right? He's going to, he's going to make this compelling argument that's going to leave them speechless. And this is what he's going to do. He's going to take what they normally do, and he's going to transition to what he has done. And he's going to show them, you guys are hypocrites. You accept this stuff, but you won't accept what I did. And this is what he's going to do. And so he's going to paint them in the picture. And by the way, when Jesus finishes this argument, this little maestro, and he kind of ties that final knot, the crowd's going to be like, this dude's off the charts. <laughs> like, like, who is this guy? Like, they're going to be blown away by the way he positions them. So verses 22 through 23, read this. Moses, therefore, gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the father's. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? And see, circumcision, and, and you notice that parentheses there. John kind of gives us this editorial comment here. 
But you'll notice that, that circumcision, it was originally initiated and given to Abraham back in Genesis 17. Well, this is long before the Mosaic law, which came in Exodus 20. But what we see is that when you get to the Mosaic law and Moses begins to record the law for the nation of Israel, he records circumcision on the eighth day as a law from God. So it gets, it gets codified, as they say, in legal terminology. And so Genesis 17, where it's initiated, is with Abraham. In other words, the fathers, right? This is what John is giving the editorial comment on. It says, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old shall be circumcised. And then we see in Leviticus 12.3, this is where it's codified in the Mosaic law. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. And so circumcision became really an act of obedience to God, not by the child. I mean, they have no say in the matter, you know, as a newborn baby, eight days old, but by the parents. This is the parents bringing this child. And what it did is it demonstrated, it's simply a, a picture, much like communion is a picture, much like baptism is a picture. This was a picture demonstrating their faith in God's promises to Abraham. They were trusting in the God of Abraham. They were trusting in the promises that the God of Abraham had made to Abraham and his posterity. The reason Jesus mentions Moses, right, is he just told them in verse 19, didn't Moses give you the law? Don't you have the law? And then he gives the caveat about the fathers is because the Jews viewed infant circumcision as binding under the Mosaic law. And so the point is this, he's dealing with his audience the way that they need to be dealt with. Circumcision, although given to Abraham, had been codified in the law of Moses, and thus his audience, especially the Jewish religious leaders, viewed this as law. You could not break this. If you broke this law, you were violating your covenant with God. You were disobeying God. They took it very seriously. And this is why Jesus is saying this. This was binding in their mindset. But to put it simply, and here was the groundwork for the apparent contradiction. If Jewish parents refused to circumcise their son on the eighth day following his birth, they would have been viewed as having broken the law of Moses at direct command of Yahweh. They would have been a lawbreaker. That would have been very bad for him. But this sets up the problem because moms, you can say amen loud or just kind of keep it to yourself. Babies have a mind of their own when they're in that birth canal, don't they? You can't control what day they're born on. Many women wish they could. <laughs> and, and, and oftentimes it's you want them out quicker than longer. I don't know if I've met anyone. It's like, yeah, I'm kind of good being two weeks late. You know, they're kind of like, come on already. Like get out of there, right? They're pumped. But here's the thing. What if a baby is born on a day and then the eighth day falls on a Sabbath. Now you got a problem. Because now do I keep the Sabbath and break the law of circumcision? Or do I circumcise my child and potentially break the law of Sabbath because I'm doing something activity-wise? I'm performing surgery, right? And this is the, the point that Jesus is bringing out, this apparent contradiction. What, what we find out in the scriptures and what we find out in history is a precedent had already been set. And this is what Jesus points out, is this. You circumcise a man on the Sabbath. The, the point is this. If the eighth day happened to fall on the Sabbath, guess what they would do? They would circumcise the baby and in their thinking, potentially violate the Sabbath. But they had gotten to a place of comfort where they weren't violating the Sabbath, and they weren't. Because God had established on the eighth day, if it was a Sabbath or not, they would circumcise this infant. 
And so there were certain things that even the Jewish religious leaders that Jesus is talking to knew that they could address on the Sabbath day without guilt that they were violating the Sabbath. Circumcision was one of those. We're going to look at a few more here in a second. And so he says, if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? And Jesus simply points out their hypocrisy. See, their emphasis and focus was on activity on the Sabbath rather than God's heart for the Sabbath. And what is God's heart for the Sabbath? Was it just to shut down the nation of Israel and make everyone just kind of move like robots all day and not go anywhere? I mean, was that his heart, literally his heart? No, his heart was for life. And you're going to see that in some of the commands. You're going to see that he cares about life, even animal life on the Sabbath, let alone human life, of course. But he cares about life. He cares about rest. He cares about relational intimacy or fellowship. Those of you who have ever fallen into the trap of chasing a buck in this world know exactly what I'm talking about. Because when boss man says, I need you to go again, you say, okay, I'll go. I need a double out of you. Okay, I'll go. Why? Because you're trying to work your way up the ladder. You, you don't even give thought of giving your body a, a potential rest. You don't even think that way. You think I got to get here because I got to climb, right? It was the same for the Jew. What this day gave is the entire nation an excuse to, to set aside time to worship God in their hearts and to reconnect with him relationally. Instead of just going through the motions, which we can all do from time to time. So it had this, this great way of, of meeting their needs. And so a man uh, who, who worked on the Sabbath, who, who tried to advance his cause on the Sabbath, make more money on the Sabbath, what they were basically doing is they weren't trusting the Lord to provide for them. They say, I got to do it. I'm the man. I, I got to provide. If, and guess what? If $10 is good, 11's better. And if 11's good, 12's better. And if 13 is good, then 14 is better. In fact, you ask any rich person, hey, when can you shut it down? When can you shut down the business? When do you have enough? What's enough? And you know what they always say, right? Just a little bit more. And that's going to be their answer until they're, they can't even get out of bed. <laughs> they're on their deathbed. Oh, just a little bit more. If I could just make one more deal, if I can just do this, you know, one more shift, just get one more dollar in my 401k right? And that's the way mankind is naturally wired. So God had a heart behind the Sabbath to benefit man. He wasn't creating some arbitrary thing for man to worship. And this is where it had turned for the Jewish religious leaders. And so Jesus is merely pointing out that if they were consistent, which is a problem with religious legalists, they're never consistent. But if they were consistent with their interpretation of what constituted work on the Sabbath, then they would find themselves in some awkward conundrums, including circumcision. This is what he's pointing them out. The unanswerable question for them would become, which law of God will you violate? This is re really what Jesus is pointing out to them. Which law are you going to violate? And he says, are you going to violate your interpretation of the Sabbath law regarding work? Or are you going to violate the idea of circumcision, which is clearly given on the eighth day, regardless of what day that eighth day falls on. And see, their interpretation was providing a bigger problem for them. Their interpretation was putting them in a pickle. See, they were interpreting that any activity on the Sabbath was wrong or violating God, but they didn't realize that they were already engaged in activity in some of these conundrums 
Because those conundrums had developed. God did not paint himself in the box. Religious man always paints himself in a box. God does not contradict himself. Religious legalists contradict themselves constantly. And so thankfully, we know that God didn't hem himself in in the past. He doesn't do so in the present like religious legalists constantly do. In fact, as we've said before and we say it again, religious legalists, if you are a religious legalist, you will be inconsistent. You will be a hypocrite. In fact, you will be the, the reason that many people leave the faith because they look at you, they say, wait a minute, they say this, they do this, this doesn't line up. And you know what? They're right. In fact, if you don't want to see any hypocrites, don't come to this church because we, we all default into hypocrisy because we all default back to legalism. And this is why we need to just adjust our thinking and continue to adjust our thinking because when we see situations in scripture like this, it's not about, oh, how terrible those Jewish leaders, religious leaders are, but wow, I can be like that too. I have the same kind of heart that these men had. And if we're not careful, you're going to judge them while doing the same exact thing in your life and pushing people away from the Lord Jesus Christ, which is exactly what these men are doing to the point that they want to kill the very Messiah that came to die for him and rise again. It's insane how dumb religion is and how foolish religious inconsistency is. And you know what? If it's okay to circumcise a little baby on the Sabbath, then guess what? It's okay to heal a man who's never been healed before on the Sabbath. That's Jesus's argument. Give me a break. (laughs) No, he can wait to be healed till tomorrow. That was their argument. Why? Why not recognize the heart of the Sabbath from God's perspective instead of their own lousy interpretation of what it meant? And see, some of the other awkward Sabbath day conundrums, we'll move through this quickly, mentioned in scriptures. When a sheep fell into a pit on the Sabbath, can you get it out? This is a livelihood. Oh, it's just a dumb sheep, right? It's just a dumb animal, you know? I, actually, I think if that was a cat, we'd probably, yeah, we'll just leave the cat there, you know? <laughs> Maybe if it's still alive tomorrow, we might try to get it out. I'm not a big cat fan, sorry. I've been, I've been roasting cats all morning. But anyways, the underlying principle of the heart of God on the Sabbath observance is to honor and respect and to save life. If it's an animal, save it. If it's a human, then double time save it is kind of the idea. And so Matthew 12 says this, he said to them, what man is there among you who has one sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out. You see, they had already made an adjustment to their Sabbath interpretation with the sheep falling into a pit. Another conundrum that they didn't recognize is violating the Sabbath. How much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. See, this is the heart of God when it comes to the Sabbath. This is what the religious leaders didn't recognize. And Jesus understood clearly because it's his heart. He is God, right? He, he claimed that in John 5. They recognize his claim. What, uh, when one of your animals needs to be watered on the Sabbath, can you water them? Oh, no, you can't walk them down. No, no, that's, that's work. That's work. That's activity. No. Luke says this, then the Lord answered him and said, you hypocrite, does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? Why, why do they lose them, by the way? Because if they keep them bound, they can't get water. That makes sense, right? That's, um, that's not <laughs> deep truth. But notice where Jesus goes, so ought not this woman 
being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, think of it for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath. You'll, loose, you'll, you'll untie your donkey for water, but you're not going to allow me to heal this woman on the Sabbath? You're a hypocrite. You're missing the heart of God in the Sabbath. When you're hungry, can you eat from grain fields on the Sabbath? Now, we look at that and it's like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. But you know that the religious Jews of the day thought that if you walk through a grain field and pluck a couple pieces of grain, you're harvesting. Can't harvest on the Sabbath. That's work. That's how they viewed it. Well, notice how Jesus viewed it. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath and his disciples were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. What are they talking about? They viewed that as harvesting. Can't harvest on the Sabbath. They weren't harvesting. They're hungry. They grabbed a snack. That's not harvesting. Again, you see, they missed the point. What about when you're hungry? Can you eat the priestly showbread? Can you go into the tabernacle and take the bread that's reserved for the priests if you're hungry? David did. That's what we read in Matthew 12, 3 through 4. Have you not what read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. See, it's a unique situation where life needed to be preserved. Now, if there was an Israelite who was a lazy bum that sat up at the temple all day and said, hey, give me, throw me some of that bread again. That probably wouldn't work out too well. Unique situation though. He's on the run, right, from Saul. It's, it's a preservation of life. God is into life and health and rest and peace, even if it falls on the Sabbath. Not just like, well, you're going to have to wait till tomorrow. You know, it's like all the governmental offices in the world, you're going to have to wait till Monday. It's like, man, I need it today, you know? And so this is a situation. God is not like the government. Amen. Can the priests work in the temple? I mean, if the Sabbath is a day of rest, can priests work in the temple? Well, Have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? How can you be blameless if you profane it? In other words, there's certain activity that's allowed behind the heart of God for the Sabbath. These are all things that these Jewish leaders would have recognized. These are all things that they would have understood had had apparently contradicted their interpretation of what the Sabbath was. He addresses their anger with him. Are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath. And he's pointing back again to John 5 and this man at the pool of Siloam, which happened in Jerusalem. Angry means simply to be ill-natured, bittered with, violently angry, or incensed at. In fact, this fury that they felt was so strong that they wanted to kill him. That's where they go with this. They are literally looking for an opportunity to kill them. And he's got them in a pickle. He's pointing out Their hypocrisy, their interpretation of what Sabbath work is versus God's heart behind the Sabbath. And what they didn't understand is that both circumcision, which is really the argument he makes here, circumcision and healing fell in line with God's heart for the Sabbath. Okay, and this is what he's trying to point out for them, that God has a heart for people regardless of what it is. Again, the cause of their fury is the infirmed healing or the the healing of the infirm man at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath. Jesus is going to go on here in this next verse and just say, look, guys, the reason you're having a problem with this is because you're not judging things accurately. They're going to judge things the way that many of us judge things, and that's on external appearance. But we even have a saying in our day, right? Don't judge a book by its cover. 
And so that's, that's a biblical principle. In fact, it goes all the way back, back to the days of David, right? Where, where Samuel's like, oh yeah, this guy looks like a stud. This guy looks like a stud. This guy, this guy looks like a run. It's probably not him. It's probably these really handsome studly guys. That's who our king needs to be. And God's like, don't get distracted by the external appearances. I look at the heart. And you take that little runt down at the end, that's your next king. You know, the, the little dirty guy that's been out, you know, shepherding sheep. That's your guy right there. And Samuel's like blown away. I would have never picked him, right? But he ends up being the best king that Israel ever had. Judging accurately, these men were not doing that. Verse 24 says this, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Interesting here, Jesus uses a negated present tense command, which indicates uh, they need to stop an action already in progress. They are judging according to appearance. They're, They're already engaged in that. And Jesus says, you need to stop doing that. And what were they judging according to what appearance? They were judging according to their tradition. And anytime tradition starts to take the driver's seat over and above the word of God, you are gonna have problems. And the biggest problem that most of us have is we don't recognize the difference between tradition and biblical truth. We think it's the same. And you know what? Many people in our day are rejecting the word of God and rejecting the Christianity, not because of the word of God and not because of Christianity and not because of the person of Jesus Christ, but because of the traditions that they can't stomach. Well, guess what? Join the club. Many of us can't stomach those traditions either. And you know, it's so ironic. We go to places like Liberia. I go to Liberia twice, Liberia, West Africa, twice a year. And it is so easy for me to go to Liberia and see all of the cultural things that they bring into their worship service that aren't biblical, but are cultural. Now, some of them aren't wrong. Some of them are neutral. Some of them you could say, oh, I kind of wish they'd stop doing that. (laughs) But you know what? If they came here, they would be full of 20 questions. Why do you do this? Why do y'all do that? Why do you? And you know what? Many of our answers would be, oh, I don't know. We've just always done it that way. And sometimes we don't even know. I was in a Sunday school years ago and I won't, well, I have to tell. Anyways, I was in a, I was, <laughs> well, y'all, some of y'all know my background. I was in a Baptist Sunday school years ago um, and, and we were in a Sunday school class and someone was asking the leader, well, why are we doing that? Like, what's the justification for that? And the guy's answer was, well, we're Baptists, and that's just what Baptists do. And I was like, man, make me want to puke. Like, there's got to be a better reason than that. Appealing to some denominational tradition versus the word of God. And so, again, if you're Baptist here, I don't, trust me, I, I've been to some good Baptist churches too, so I don't, I'm not trying to offend. It's just this idea that sometimes we hold tradition above the word of God, and that's a problem. This is what the, the Jewish religious leaders are doing here. To judge means to separate, to distinguish, to discriminate between good and evil. It means to form an opinion after you've separated and considered the facts of the case. And they were doing that focused on external appearances. This is what Jesus is saying. They need to stop doing that. They're viewing everything through an external lens. Well, this is what Rabbi so-and-so did. This is what Rabbi so-and-so thought. This is what everything's this external traditional lens. We're going to see that that even gets the crowd in trouble here in a second as well. But they were making evaluations of Jesus and his right to heal a man based on their own externally set up man-made interpretation of what work entailed on the Sabbath. And they had, had developed this external measurable standard. They, they had thought that Jesus had violated, but they were wrong. They were actually wrong from a divine perspective. Jesus had not violated the Sabbath. 
They needed to, and this is what Jesus is telling them, stop evaluating him this way. They needed to think from a biblical perspective. First Samuel 16, 7, I mentioned earlier, Samuel's view of David. Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks where? The heart. This is, and this is what the leaders were missing. They were l- missing the heart of the Sabbath from Yahweh's perspective. They were so committed to their viewpoint that, I don't know if you've met somebody like that. They're so committed to their viewpoint that they would actually tell you, don't, don't confuse me with the facts. Like I've already got my mind made up, right? Maybe you meet people like that in the political, I'm going all political today, but maybe you meet people like that in the political room, realm. Don't confuse me with the facts. I've already got my mind made up. And so many people are like that religiously too. They are so committed to tradition that even when you show them the word of God, they cannot even adjust their thinking. They won't even respond to the word of God. They'll just take their tradition over and above what the word of God teaches. And may it never be said of anyone in this room that that's true of you. That is death on a stick right there. That is spiritual death on a stick right there. If you want to, if you want to die spiritually, if you want to end up a grumpy old man, bitter at the world, grumpy old woman, bitter at the world. I remember being in a nursing home years ago and we were, I was there with my children and we were talking so, uh, too loud. We were interrupting this woman's viewing of the Golden Girls rerun on TV. And I've never heard a person cuss like that woman before. I mean, I've been around sailors. I've been around baseball players all my life. She lit into us and I'm sitting there looking at her. I've got these little kids here. She didn't give a rip. We were interrupting golden girls. And if, and maybe you won't end up at that extreme in life, but that is where you end up when you reject the word of God and accept your tradition. You will fight for things that don't matter instead of fighting for the one thing that does matter. And that's Jesus Christ, him crucified, him risen. That's worth fighting for. That's worth fighting for preaching and understanding that message. And so he says, don't do this, but judge with righteous judgment. Righteous simply means God's standard, right? According to the rules of God, God's heart. And you know, what's the problem with these Jewish religious leaders? And this is crazy because you think religious people are concerned about what God thinks. Don't be deceived. That's not always the case. People, uh, religious people are just like you and me. They have good days, they have bad days. And on their bad days, they're not even interested in God's viewpoint. They're only interested in accomplishing their agenda. They're just like you and me. So understand, that's where these religious leaders are at. They're not interested in God's viewpoint on the Sabbath. They're interested in promoting their agenda. And that is going to obviously get them into trouble. Now, it's this persuasive argument. In fact, verse 24 uh, finishes the red letters in your Bible, right? And now we go into kind of a side conversation with the audience. But notice what they're going to bring out. They're going to tell us that the Jewish religious leaders were silenced by this argument. They had no response. They had no rebuttal. They didn't, uh, it was like they were caught in headlights, right? They didn't know where to go from here because Jesus had really put them on their heels. And so let's look what they say in verse 25 through 26. Now, some of them from Jerusalem said, is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? Context is helpful here because if you kind of read through this, you're like, what? 
how many, who, who's here and what's, who's thinking what? There's really three groups of people within this crowd. And I think this is helpful to point out. Number one, the Jewish religious leaders who want to kill Jesus. We've been talking about them. That's very clear. They come through. They're the Jews. But what you're going to see here is there's a distinction in verse 25 from, say, verse 20. And see if you can pick that up. It says in verse 25, now some of them from Jerusalem said, and we're going to look at what they said, but notice what the the people said in verse 20. The people answered and said, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. So there's a group of people there that don't understand the tension that's going on. That's verse 20. Then you have a group of people there in verse 25 that do understand the tension, that do understand the leaders want to kill Jesus. What's the distinction? It's the locals. It's the people from Jerusalem that understand the tension because they're around these religious leaders all the time in Jerusalem. It's the people in verse 20 who have traveled in for the feast. They're, they're just out in the country. They don't even under, they're just like, oh yeah, Jesus is cool. He's doing a lot of healing. Hopefully we'll get to see him. They have no clue that the Jewish religious leaders have already made up their mind they're going to kill this man. So they're, that's why they're like in verse 20, who's, who's seeking to kill you? You have a demon. They're basically saying, you, you got mental problems, right? You got some mental illness. That's that group of people, the one traveling in, because they don't understand the tension of what's going on in the situation. This group in verse 25, our people are homegrown people. These are locals. They understand the tension. And what they're saying is this, man, um, goodness sakes, isn't this the guy they want to kill? But here he is basically speaking boldly right to their face, and they do nothing about it. That's odd, right? If the religious leaders on the right, here's their chance to take this guy. Why aren't they doing it? That's what they're pointing out. In fact, the word said, we've been talking about this in perfect tense. It indicates a continual or ongoing verbal discourse. Course. It could be translated, they kept on saying, they kept on talking about this. This was what they kept on saying to one another. Like, I can't believe they're not doing anything to this guy. You know, it'd be like if a, if a guy came into your house and, and, and started pointing at your dad. Let's say you're a little kid and he starts pointing at your dad and says, this guy's the most terrible guy in the world. And he cheats everybody out of money. And, he'd, and then you as a little kid, you're like, my dad's about to beat this guy up, right? Like, you can't be running into my house saying that stuff. And then your dad says nothing. And then the guy leaves. It would confuse you because you don't really know what's going on. You don't understand the tension. That's how this crowd is. They're like, wait, wait a minute. We understand the tension. Why aren't they doing something about this? In fact, when they use the word seek, they, they, they use the same one that Jesus did. It means right now, continually, this is what they were desiring. They're actively striving to find an opportunity to take Jesus out. They're looking under rocks. They're looking for angles and they're looking for the exact opportunity. In fact, what it implies is if they had the opportunity, they would do it. What it implies is they haven't killed him yet because they haven't had the exact circumstances present themselves for them to do it. So they're, they're ready. The, the, you know, the bullets in the chamber, fingers on the trigger. They're, they're ready to roll. It's kind of the idea. And, and this is what blows them away. Because they're like, why aren't they doing anything about it? In fact, they said, but look, he speaks boldly. They say nothing to him. And look is just a particle of exclamation. We would translate that probably with an exclamation point uh, in our day, calling attention to something present. The idea is stop what you're doing and look at what I'm pointing out. Stop what you're doing and put the phone down, right? Put Put Facebook down, put Instagram down really focus on what I'm trying to tell you. And this is kind of the idea here. And what they're pointing out is that he speaks boldly. And it's this 
again, right now, right in their face, continues he's not saying this behind their back, he's saying it right to them, and he's speaking with freedom or frankness in his speech. The idea is that Jesus is giving both barrels to them, not holding anything back, is kind of the idea. And they recognize that he's doing this, and yet their response is, they're speechless. Right now, in this moment, continually, they don't even know what to say back to him. They're just <laughs> maybe stunned. Right? There's, how can they respond? He just called out this incredible hypocrisy. Healing a man is, is much more beneficial to someone than circumcising a baby, and yet they're willing to break or violate the Sabbath in their mind in that sense. But in this sense, it's worthy of death. It, they just don't make sense, and so they've got no defense. And so the implication is if Jesus was truly worthy of death, wouldn't they have an airtight case against him? Wouldn't it be obvious that he was wrong and they were right. Wouldn't they have truth on their side? Why wouldn't they act on truth? So they're starting to see that for themselves, the hypocrisy in these religious leaders. They're saying, man, they're all fired up, but then they're not even going to do anything about it is kind of where this is going. And so the people formulate a speculation and you see their speculation there, right there at the end of verse 26. Their speculation is maybe they're not saying anything to him because they actually know now that he's the Messiah. Maybe that's why they're not doing it. And so the question becomes, are they hiding something? And that's kind of their viewpoint. Do they know? Do they, are they starting to come to know or gain a knowledge? And, and that's kind of the assumption. Well, maybe these guys actually know who he is. Maybe they're starting to realize his true identity. Maybe that's why they're not saying anything to him. And to say that maybe the rulers knew that Jesus was the Christ was to acknowledge this simple truth that Jesus was behaving like the Christ was supposed to behave, right? Because there's all of these prophesied miracles that were specifically talked about that the Messiah would do, and Jesus was doing those things. This is what's so amazing about Jesus. In fact, when we get to John chapter 9, the, 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 the incredible thing that, John, uh, that Jesus is going to do in John 9 is he's going to heal a man of blindness who was born blind. That was a miracle that only Yahweh could do according to even the Jewish religious leaders. And now Jesus puts that on their front doorstep. Sorry, what are you going to do about that? Because <laughs> I just did it. And they didn't, they begin to explain it away as we get to John 9, we'll see that. And so the people were basically insinuating that if Jesus was a false teacher, they would be able to oppose him. If he was a false prophet, they would come after him. But they don't do that. They were silent. And they're just like, that's weird. <laughs> Why are they being weird? Why won't they get him if they hate him so much this? And by the way, I might just add this for a second. What's really incredible is the follow-up question that they didn't ask. And I think this is very significant. And it goes back to this holding to tradition because we're going to see why they stopped following the breadcrumbs. You know, you, you follow the breadcrumbs. That's kind of a saying of following the evidence to, to really pursue truth. But here's the, here's the question they didn't ask. If they do know that he's the Messiah... Why are they trying to kill him? What, what is significant? Why, if he's the Messiah, wouldn't we receive him? But if he's the Messiah and they know that, why are we trying to kill him? They didn't follow up on that question. We'll see why here in a second. By the way, had they asked this question, they may have been, been able to start putting together the prophecies regarding Messiah's predicted death and resurrection. See, these were the two problems for many Jews. We've got all these prophecies about a coming reigning king. But we've got these prophecies about how he's going to suffer and die. How do I fit those two together? And by this time in history, the Jews said, well, let's, let's really talk about the reigning king ones, the suffering servants. Uh, let's just put those over here. I don't know what to do with those. But see, had they pursued this, 
they might have started seeing the truth that's recorded in the scriptures. In Daniel 9.26, gives us a time frame for when the Messiah would be cut off or killed. Again, Daniel 9, you can just jot this if you're taking notes, Jan, uh, Daniel 9, 24 through 27, it's a prophecy of the 70 weeks of Daniel. He predicts that after uh, basically a king issues a decree to rebuild and restore Jerusalem, which we know happened with King Artaxerxes, who's a king in the Medo-Persian Empire. From the time that goes out, there'd be 483 years until the Messiah would be cut off. Now, they could have done the math from that and figured out, wait a minute, the Messiah is here. He's, it's, the scriptures say he's going to be cut off or died. And they might have said, oh, maybe the religious leaders are going to have a hand in this. And they could have connected those prophecies, but they didn't. Isaiah 53 describes, obviously, the Messiah death. So if they had made these connections, maybe the dominoes would have started to fall for them in their understanding. But because they stopped here, they stopped pursuing truth. They stopped, they got that last breadcrumb. They saw another one like, no, we're not going to go there. We're going to stop right here. Because they began to lean on their own understanding through tradition, they missed the rest of the breadcrumbs and the, breadcrumbs and the word of God. What's sad about this is that we get to verse 27, which is where we're going to finish today. They're close. <laughs> That's what's sad. They're really close to the truth but they're going to talk themselves out of the truth because they're more committed to tradition than they are to the word of God. And so let's look at that in verse 27. And this is what they end up saying uh, to Jesus, or they end up saying here in this passage to one another. However, we know where this man is from, but when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. And see, to, to know, they mean intuitively, instinctively. In other words, we've been knowing where this guy's from. We we know this guy's family, and this, many times this comes out in Scripture. We know his dad. We know what his dad did. We know his brothers. We know his mom, et cetera, et cetera. But the idea is that they've been knowing where he's from. Where he's from literally means his place or physical place of origin. And in some senses, they were even wrong about this because they viewed where he grew up, Nazareth, as where he was born. But he wasn't born in Nazareth, right? The, the story is clear. As they said, well, he's from Nazareth. He was born there. We, when, when the Messiah comes, we won't know where he's from. Yes, you will know where he's born. You'll at least know where he's born. Micah 5.2 tells us where he's going to be born. We celebrate that every Christmas. In fact, this may explain, by the way, why the scribe that Herod checked with when the wise men came to visit him saying, we're here to worship the king who's born. And he went and said, Where, where's he going to be born? They're like Bethlehem. But you know why one of the reasons they probably didn't go to investigate themselves? Because they believe this tradition. Nobody's going to know where the Messiah is from. So we're not going to waste our time going to Bethlehem. It might have fed into that. All started because of this faulty, almost mystical explanation of the Messiah and his origins. And it came out of Jewish tradition, not the word of God. And this is what they say. Apparently, there was a Jewish tradition, not biblical, that no one would know the Messiah's earthly origins. And so a tradition became an obstacle to actually believing the truth of the Word of God. Now, can that happen today? <laughs> you better believe it can happen today. And each one of us is responsible to, to examine ourselves and what we believe and why we believe it. And is there a verse or a passage that we can tie to what we believe. Because if there's not, there's a chance for each one of us to adjust our thinking and to align ourselves with the teaching of the word of God. 
One of the things that we see is uh, it's interesting that the crowd changes the word know here to gnosko. That's, that's a process of knowing. That's a, a gaining of knowing. And the idea is when the Christ comes, no one will be able to gain this understanding of where he's from. And this was Jewish tradition again. And because they use it in the present tense, they're basically saying that no one would be able to know in the present where Christ is from, would know his human origin. This is the point of what they're saying. Let me just close here with a statement, a couple of statements if I can. There are many people in our day that have a positive volition to Jesus Christ. In other words, they like Jesus. They don't have anything against Jesus. They don't really like the people that claim to be his followers. Maybe they're a little irritated with them, but they like Jesus. They've got a positive volition to Jesus. They know some things about him, but tradition in some way or another is getting in the way of them trusting in him alone for salvation. And I would just encourage you today, as kind of we did when we were going through communion, if you sit here today and you're upset with Christianity, or you sit here today and you're convinced that there's something you need to do to be saved, I want to challenge you to what the Bible says, that we are saved by grace. And the reason we're saved by grace, God can give us something we don't deserve, that we can't earn, that we can't unearn. Because he gave Jesus everything we did deserve and earn, which was death and judgment. Jesus died in your place so that God is now free to give you something you don't earn or deserve. By the definition, that's a gift. And see, God can offer it free to you because what? Jesus paid it in full. He paid your sin debt in full. Religion wants to get in the way with that. Religion wants to add a yeah, but to that. Yeah, but you gotta, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta. And I'm here to tell you, God is looking at an event in the past as the basis of your salvation. Will you trust in what the Savior has done for you? It's already done. It is finished, as Jesus said. Do you believe it's finished? Will you rely upon what he did for you for eternal life? And that's really the exhortation, I think, I want to leave us with this morning. Tradition is just going to get in the way of that. Don't let tradition rob you of eternity. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the Lord Jesus. I pray that his name and his work was exalted here this morning. I pray that there is that you would give us understanding of the value of what he accomplished, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.